Hi, this is Dr. Mercola, and welcome to our Take Control of Your Health podcast, in which we bring you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. This next interview is part of my Best of series, which features some of the most popular interviews with leading health experts. So thank you for listening. Now let's get started with this week's program to help you and your family take control of your health. Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Dr. Lee No, who is a naturopathic physician and has wrote an incredible book on one of my favorite topics, mitochondria. And I don't think you're going to find a better book out there to help you understand the importance of these vital subcellular structures that are vital, vital to your health. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Pleasure's all mine. So um, I'm particularly curious as to well why you wrote the book. You know, but but let me precede that question by commenting again that I've I've uh, I read your first book uh, prior to my writing Fat for Fuel, and it was really instrumental in helping me understand some of the components as I was putting together my theories in Fat for Fuel. And I greatly appreciated it, but your new book is even better, goes into far more detail. So you've been passionate about this for a long time, and it's not something that most clinicians would gravitate towards. And it appears uh, from reading your book that, this is just a guess, but you can expand on it, that one of the motivations for this was anti-aging because uh, it's it's very obvious that mitochondria, if you, optimization of mitochondria are really the, the central key to extending longevity, at least with current technology. So Absolutely, yeah. is, is, was that the motivation for the book or? Well, you know what? I've always been interested in anti-aging and longevity, but that interestingly is not, was not the, the motivation behind the book. Mm. Um, uh, and I'll give you the history. This was a, a number of years ago. I was work, I was consulting for a company, a nutritional supplement company, who did a fair business in coenzyme Q10 or CoQ10. Mm -hmm. And uh, this particular brand had a CoQ10 that was particularly well absorbed and was actually used by hospitals and medical clinics uh, across the country. And this was kind of interesting to begin with because conventional medical uh, doctors typically don't gravitate towards nutritional supplements as a therapy, but in this particular case, they did because they saw the, the benefits. Um, and so within the medical community, uh, this particular brand had a fairly good reputation. And this was at, at about a, the time where there was a lot of research coming out with respect to age-related female infertility, and that being linked to dysfunctional mitochondria or aging mitochondria. And what one of the things that was going on at that time were, was that there were these rat studies that showed that we could actually reverse age-related female infertility by supplementing these rats with co coenzyme Q10. And, uh, and so some uh, clin um, uh, infertility, uh, fertility clinics in Canada started to use CoQ10. And I was invited um, as, a, as a spokesperson for this brand to give a presentation to their doctors and nurses to explain to them why they would need to recommend CoQ10 to their, their patients. And, as I started to do the research, that is where I started to understand the connection of healthy mitochondria to not just age-related female infertility, but to pretty much all degenerative diseases, <laughs> including the aging process. So, um, and, and so one of the things I, I came to realize is that there's a lot of good information out there, a lot of good primary research that's been done, but I didn't really see that there was any one resource that kind of summarized mm -hmm. everything. And that's what I wanted to do was try to pull all these different resources together to kind of give, uh, you know, a, a starting point for anyone that is really interested in the mitochondria and understanding what, what the importance of it is. Um, and of course, in, in my book, I, I'd like to believe that I get into a fair bit of detail, but, you know, and you can appreciate this, Dr. Mercola, that it is so detailed and you can just mm -hmm. keep digging and digging. You can spend mm -hmm. a lifetime. Oh, sure. <laughs> so this is, I, I feel is a great starting point, or at least um, uh, for, for the majority of the people I think would be a great starting point. But of course you can, you can go uh, spend an entire lifetime looking at one particular oh, sure. disease. And, yeah. and some people do. So how long did it take you to write the book? Was it five or six years or longer? It was, uh, I think, about four and a half years. Four and a half yeah. years, okay. Yeah. And, and let me tell you, I, I could continue to research right now. Um, sure. I, at some point, I had to draw the line and say, you know what, I, now I'm going to start to write. Um, 
And unfortunately, that, mean, that meant uh, there are a lot of health conditions that are linked back to uh, dysfunctional <laughs> mitochondria that didn't make it into the book. But, um, sure. but again, this is a starting point. Sure. And that's the challenge with any book is uh, it, it, certainly by the time it gets printed and, uh, and to available to the public, it's about a year out of date. Yeah. So uh, at least with respect to uh, most of the science related books. So but nevertheless, uh, I think you radically succeeded in, um, in compiling what I believe is the best resource out there to getting people up to speed on mitochondria because you've really uh, successfully navigated the balance between making it too technically challenging yet yet with enough scientific information that's that most people will be able to easily understand and certainly better if you've had some some high school biology or, co or right. college biology so um, I think it's a great investment to pick up a book I mean books are really one of the best value investments you can make for gathering knowledge I mean because <clears throat> I, I specifically on this topic I had uh, really dug deep into the mitochondria literature and you know your book was just accelerated the whole course so if someone wants to learn about this a book is the best way and this is really one of the best books out there so let was having prefaced that let's go into some of the uh, the details in the book um well wh why don't you probably from your perspective since you've been studying this for four to five years uh why don't you enlighten us as to precisely what mitochondria are Okay, so, so I'm going to take everyone back to their high school biology days where we learned about cell biology. And um, I, I think most people would remember the mitochondria as being the powerhouse of the cell. And that, that, that's true. I mean, when we consider that uh, the mitochondria is responsible for producing over 90% of the energy that, ha um, that occurs in our body, um, you, can, you can see that it's appropriately, appropriately named as the, uh, the, the powerhouse of the cell. But the thing is, is that uh, and what a lot of people fail to realize is that literally everything that happens in our body, everything requires an input of energy. Uh, so, you know, things like uh, muscle contraction, it's pretty obvious that it requires energy. But a lot of things that happen in the cell that people don't even think are happening, like the transfer of ions across membranes, are just the maintenance of the, the shape of the cytoskeleton. So those microtubules to maintain itself, uh, this shape requires an input of energy. So literally everything that happens in the cell requires energy. And because the mitochondria is so critical to that energy supply, uh, what, we're, what we're learning is that anytime you have a decrease in that energy production, things can start to fall apart. So even though in, in high school biology, we learned it pretty simple as the, the powerhouse of the cell, we're starting to realize from a practical and a clinical standpoint that it's far more important than just that. Yeah, and they don't produce all the energy, but they produce certainly most of it. It was about 85%, 90%. About there, yes. Yeah, because they have the alternative glycolytic pathway. So right. that energy production clearly is what they're noted for, but they have other radically important functions, such as signaling molecules, especially for signaling the important process called apoptosis. And uh, so why don't you explain what apoptosis is? And then if you could explain its relationship to autophagy. Yeah, so, so basically um, apoptosis is basically cell suicide. So what ends up happening is um, over the course of a cell's life, it's functioning and over, over time, it's gonna pick up some damage. And when that damage crosses a threshold, there's signals that are sent to the cell that, that tell it, you know what? we're no longer functional, we better commit suicide for the, the, the greater good of the organism. Um, and what's interesting is that the newest research has shown that it's the mitochondria that orchestrates, first of all, it, it receives all the different signals of, of apoptosis. So uh, there are many different ways a cell can get the, uh, the signal that it's time to commit suicide. Uh, it's the mitochondria that that receives all those signals, determines whether or not that threshold has been reached. And if so, it's the mitochondria that initiates that, that cell suicide program. Um, the interesting thing to, to note, however, is that if your mitochondria are dysfunctional, uh, first of all, it might not be able to understand those signals properly and not give the signal for apoptosis when it's supposed to happen. Uh, but the other thing is, is that all those different um, things that happen in the apoptosis cascade also require an input of energy. So again, even though it might be able to read the signals properly and give the signal that it's time to commit suicide, if there's not enough energy being produced, 
um, well, you're going to allow these defective cells to survive and, and multiply. And, and that's one of the, the things that, uh, again, uh, the newer research is showing that when you have dysfunctional mitochondria, that is the basis behind uh, what we know as cancer. Yes, that's the that's the key because who cares about cell suicide? But if you make connect the dots as you just mentioned, uh, the, the the largest issue is of course increasing your risk for cancer. And with fifty percent of the people watching this likely to come down with cancer in their lifetime, that's a big issue. Definitely. So and and and, <clears throat> and dysfunctional is sort of an amorphous concept that's difficult to understand because it be, could be at a biomolecular level. But actually, if you look at a electron microscopy, and Dr. Seyfried's done a, a, good, a lot of good work on this, and you can see that not only do the numbers of mitochondria decrease, but they become small and deformed and the endoplasmic reticulum within the mitochondria becomes damaged. So it's, you know, when mitochondria dysfunction is the core of almost all chronic degenerative disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's no question. So now, Helping us understand that is, I think, is really crucial. So, why don't you elaborate? Because you really are able to expand on some of these really important concepts, and I haven't really seen better illustrated in any other text. Uh, uh, the process of energy generation and how that causes damage. All right. So, so. Um... As you mentioned earlier, you know, 85 to 90% of the energy that is produced within the cell happens in the mitochondria with a portion of that uh, occurring outside of the mitochondria. And so energy process starts uh, in the cytosol or the, the fluid compartment of the cell in a process called glycolysis. And outside, at once that process is done, the end, end products of glycolysis then enter the mitochondria and participate in the next phase of energy uh, production, which is called uh, the tricarboxylic acid cycle or the TTA cycle. And we, we might have, uh, most people here, uh, listening in might have learned it as a Krebs cycle. Uh, and out of that, uh, the, the Krebs cycle comes other energy molecules that, that then get fed into the last part of energy production called the electron transport chain. And this is where the, the, the process uh, can potentially go wrong and lead to dysfunctional mitochondria. Now, what ends up happening is when we eat all those calories that we, we consume get transferred down or converted into electrons uh, and then get fed into the electron transport chain. So the electrons enter at complex one or complex two, and those two complexes pass on electrons to coenzyme Q10, uh, and, and then down the, down the chain until it reaches uh, what we call uh, complex four. Now, complex four is a very unique part in the cell because it's the only place in the cell where we can uh, take those electrons and enzymatically react them with oxygen to create water. The problem is, is if those electrons don't reach complex four and spill out of the, uh, the electron transport chain prior to complex four, it can react with oxygen prematurely and create a free radical called superoxide. And that is the, where, where the damage can start to occur because those superoxide radicals that are, that are generated at the electron, that level of the electron transport chain are created in the immediate proximity of mitochondrial DNA. And mitochondrial DNA is, is particularly susceptible to damage. So anytime those free radicals are generated, you can have damage to the, the, the DNA in the mitochondria. And if those DNA are, are damaged, you can't produce the, the proteins it codes for and everything starts to fall apart. Now, mind you, uh, and this goes back to what you were saying earlier, is that those free radicals in some, some cases are beneficial. But you have to keep in mind that just like anything, uh, just like our conversation right now, we take pieces of information and put it into, into context. Um, the, the problem was previously we, we took free radicals out of context and just thought, you know, they're bad. Um, but in the backdrop of certain other things happening in the cell, they can actually uh, be quite important signaling molecules. But uh, in general, we would say that, you know, at, at the level of the mitochondria, when those superoxide radicals are formed, um, they're typically a bad thing. Again, not in all cases, but in, in, sure. in many cases that we're talking about, uh, we, we want to make sure we minimize those. All right. Well, thank you for laying that foundation because we want to expand it in a large number of different directions to help further uh, uh, elucidate our understanding of mitochondria. So 
<clears throat> the first one is uh, just take, taking a step backwards on this uh, DNA damage. If you could elaborate on the mechanisms, the repair mechanisms that are in our body, and first of all, comment on how frequently this damage occurs and how efficiently and effectively this damage is reversed every moment that we're awake. Yeah, so, so it, um, damage is happening all the time. Now, mind you, a very small percentage of the electrons that pass through the electron transport chain are converted into superoxide radicals. Uh, but keep in mind that they're happening every second thousands of times in every cell. Uh, and those free radicals can go on to inflict damage to the, the mitochondrial DNA. The thing is, is that, uh, and, and we do have repair mechanisms, but when I said the, the DNA and the mitochondria are particularly susceptible to damage, um, and that's in, when I, I said that in comparison to the DNA and the nucleus or the nuclear mm -hmm. DNA. So the DNA and the nucleus are protected by elaborate, elaborate proteins called histones. Uh, so it, it's almost like a shield around the DNA. Uh, the mitochondrial DNA does not have those protective proteins. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind is that um, the DNA and the nucleus have these massive reams of what we call junk DNA or DNA that does not necessarily code for protein. Now, mind you, the newest research is showing that they're not actually junk. They actually serve a purpose, but they, but, but they don't necessarily code for proteins. Whereas the DNA in the, uh, in the mitochondria is, is, tightly packed. There's no junk DNA. So if the free radical is going to go in and inflict damage, it's likely going to have a negative impact to uh, a, a protein that's uh, coded for, from that. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that the DNA in the nucleus does have elaborate repair mechanisms. Uh, so it's very efficient at repairing uh, damage, whereas the DNA in the mitochondria doesn't have as good repair mechanisms. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that the DNA in the mitochondria doesn't have repair mechanisms. It certainly does. Um, and the newer research is showing it might actually be a lot more efficient than we previously thought, uh, but we still want to be able to maintain uh, as few free radicals generated uh, to help minimize that damage so that the repair mechanisms have a much easier job. Because of course, the, the, there's always going to be a balance even though the uh, repair mechanisms may be efficient to a certain degree, anytime you have damage or free radicals being generated that exceed the capacity of the repair mechanisms, you're gonna cause irreversible damage. And that's what the, the whole point is to, to stop. Yes, indeed. And uh, the, the premise of my book, Fat for Fuel, was to really address this central issue is to minimize the production of excess free radicals and yeah. still, of course, allow the uh, intrinsic in level of uh, biologically important free radicals to maintain, be maintained. Absolutely. So it's the ex excess free radicals, which is what happens when we diverge from our ancestral diet. So when, when we're eating processed foods, especially industrialized fats and loads of of excess carbohydrates, we can't burn fat as a primary fuel, and burning ketones and fat is far more efficient and and less oxidative, stress-inducing than carbohydrates. So that is really the the premise of the book, Fat for Fuel, is to is to optimize the the your fuel so that you can minimize the oxidative stress of the mitochondria. Right. Yeah. So that's that's the key. So let let's go on another tangent because. I really used your book to highlight the importance of the timing of food. And you do such a magnificent job of explaining what happens when you eat too late, when your body doesn't need energy. And so many people do this. They're eating before they go to bed. And that's one of the, one of the worst things you can do is to, to fuel your cells and your body with energy when you don't need it. So right. walk us through this, take your time because it's a really intriguing story. Sure, and, and this goes back to you know uh, what causes damage at the level of the mitochondria. Um, and one of those is excess calories. Now, what, as, as I mentioned, when we eat, all, the, all that food is converted at the, at the cellular level into electrons. Uh, the problem is, is that in order for the electron transport chain to, uh, to run smoothly, we need to actually, so at the, after complex four, um, in some texts you might see it as complex five, it's not really a, a complex of the electron transport chain, uh, it's more uh, appropriately known as ATP synthase. Uh, this 
this is another enzyme that's coupled to the electron transport chain. But what ends up happening is that uh, the electron transport chain essentially pumps protons into what we call the mito uh, intermitochondrial space. And we build up that concentration of protons and eventually they flow back through the ATP synthase and create ATP. Now, the thing is that in order for the ATP synthase uh, to continue to run, it needs the building blocks of ATP, which is ADP or adenosine diphosphate. Uh, and it takes a, a phosphate ion, combines them to create ATP. Now, the thing is, is that we need to use up that ATP. Um, so when we use up ATP, our bodies break off that third phosphate and create ADP again. And that cycle can happen over and over again, as long as we're using up that ATP. The problem is, is that especially at night, when we're ready to go to bed, where we're gonna be sedentary for eight hours, for the next eight hours. At least we hope, yeah. <laughs> not six hours like most people. True. Um, what's happening there is that we're building up this ATP, but we're not using it. We're not breaking it down to ADP. So essentially what ends up happening is that ATP synthase, that enzyme basically shuts down. It doesn't have the, the building blocks of ADP anymore. What ends up happening then is the entire chain backs up. So the, the electrons cannot flow through the electron transport chain, protons aren't being pumped anymore. But because we ate at that, uh, you know, late in the day, all those electrons are continuing to flow into the mitochondria and continue to enter the electron transport chain. And like I said earlier, if those electrons spill out of the electron transport chain prior to getting to complex four, where it can be enzymatically reacted with oxygen to create water, what ends up happening is that they spill out. Uh, and in fact, the studies have shown that complex one, so basically the, the entry into the, uh, the electron transport chain is the number one site of endogenous free radical production in our bodies. So basically what this is showing is that uh, when we have too much uh, calories or electrons entering the, the electron transport chain and it's not progressing as fast as it should or to meet the demands needed by the amount of electrons. So basically what we're, what we're seeing is a, a mismatch in supply versus demand. Mm -hmm. You're going to generate an excess amount of free radicals. And again, that's going to spill out and create damage to the, the, the mitochondrial DNA. Yeah, and uh, sort of a side point, but an important one is that uh, the, the two scenarios you described, eating late at night when your body isn't expending calories, and the, the one I elaborated in my book, Fat for Fuel, eating excessively processed foods, especially carbohydrates or predominant carbohydrates, is gonna result in this excess, the, the backup of electrons and the production of uh, superoxide. Mm -hmm. uh, so the problem here is when you have high superoxide, that superoxide isn't too bad. We've got enzymes like superoxide dismutase to, to take care of that. And it's not that pernicious a free radical. However, when you have high iron levels, as the most of the people watching this do, there's a reaction called the Fenton reaction, which combines with the superoxide to produ produce, the iron does, to produce hydroxyl free radical, which is the worst free radical in your body. So right. that you, you just magnify it. It's an exponential synergy in the bad, wrong direction. Right. Yeah. So yeah, and, and even though I, in my book, I do mention iron as a necessary component. Yeah, you have to have enough. You don't want iron deficient, but most people absolutely. are not iron deficient. Yeah. yeah, and you definitely don't want uh, an excess no, uh, amount of iron. It, it's one of those nutrients that our bodies need, but can cause havoc when you have too much. Yeah, and I, I really think it's a it's a major contributing factor for many people's cancers and heart disease. And mm -hmm. it's it's basically very rarely screened for. I mean, the, the, the typical conventional physician does not understand this. So if you ha are seeing a conventional physician, then you really need to take it upon yourself. Look at my site. I've done a lot of uh, articles on it and go into details, talk about the ferritin, the GGT levels that you can do to monitor it and how you can do either uh, blood donation or self, self lobotomy to uh, get those levels down to normal. So it's an important, sorry about that. It's an important diversion because it's really key. So the other issue that has to do with this flow of electrons is really a, a very interesting phenomenon, which is called mitochondrial uncoupling. And I, I want, want you to take the time to run through this and, and then elaborate on how certain populations, especially those from tropical and subtropical areas like Africa, 
that individuals from that area that have the genetic descent are particularly high risk unless they are taking certain measures like exercising all the time. So it's 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 an absolutely phenomenal uh, under, uh, uh, strategy that we can get from understanding biochemistry at the mitochondrial level. Yeah, and, and this, this, this whole uncoupling uh, aspect kind of ties into what we know as brown fat or brown um, uh, adipose tissue. And what's really interesting is that there's a lot of research being done on this uh, in the area of obesity research. And this is because, uh, so, so as I mentioned, when we generate, uh, when we pump those hydrogen ions, uh, they flow back through the ATPase, uh, ATP synthase to create energy. Uh, however, in, in some cases uh, and in certain tissues like brown adipose tissue, we can actually uncouple that. So basically, instead of the hydrogen ions flowing back through the ATP synthase, they flow, flow through a different channel. And instead of creating energy, it creates heat. Uh, and the, the benefit of this is now we can, uh, we're, we're, we're kind of allowing those hydrogen ions to flow back. We're, we're allowing the electron transport chain to continue to operate, even though we're not using up energy. Uh, because that energy, instead of instead of producing energy, we're using we're kind of dissipating that uh, hydrogen uh, gradient uh, through the generation of heat. And the great thing with this is that um, when you have a lot of what we call brown fat, we're seeing that it, you have a lower risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and all sorts of different degenerative diseases because you're allowing those hydrogen ions to flow back through without backing up the electron transport chain. Uh, so in, in uh, certain populations, uh, like those that live in the far north, um, they have quite a large amount of brown fat, and that's because the brown fat, as I said, generates heat. So that helps them stay warm in colder climates. Uh, on the other hand, um, populations that have originated more from the equatorial regions, they typically have very tight mitochondria or they don't have a lot of uncoupling. Uh, and this is one of the, the, the reasons why we see potentially, um, you know, certain populations have a much higher risk of, of um, cardiovascular disease, uh, obesity. Um, and one of the reasons why I think, you know, that sort of population, it becomes increasingly important to ensure that the energy that's being produced uh, as ATP is constantly used up through physical activity and exercise. Um, not to say that that's not important for, for um, you know, the, the populations that live in the far north, um, but they have other mechanisms built into their bodies that allow them to produce less uh, free radicals or um, allow that, those electrons to flow through properly without, without having to necessarily uh, have as much exercise. Yes, and uh, not to become discouraged if you're not one of the privileged people who have a genetic likelihood of having higher brown adipose tissue. You can, your body has the capacity to make it. So it's some, it's a process called cold thermogenesis, and you just need to expose your body regularly to cold. And the simple strategy, the, it's not going, you don't have to go in ice baths to do this. You can go in water. It's about 65 or so, maybe 63, and spend 15, 20 minutes, and that will upregulate your body's ability to produce brown and uh, beige adipose tissue, which right. will which will help. And so if, if you're an African-American, you have deeply di pigmented skin. I, you know, for the longest time, I thought the biggest issue, and it's still a significant issue, but it's not the only one, is is because the you have a brown, deeply pigmented skin, it's a filter and you're not gonna get ultraviolet B radiation coming through and causing your body to make uh, vitamin D. But most people are indoors anyway, so it's almost a mood issue. So you're going to still need to pay attention if you're if you have deeply pigmented skin uh, from the Middle East or Africa, uh, and you have to be rigorously pay, uh, m monitoring your vitamin D levels. But you also may want to consider cold ex intermittent cold exposure to increase your brown adipose tissue because this your mitochondria are are not uncoupled effectively. And if you if you or exercise, you know you need to pay extra attention to that. The people who aren't. Otherwise, you're, you are just exposing yourself unnecessarily to increase risk for disease. Yeah, and I think that's just really through uh, so something that's happened through evolution. Uh, again, when, when you consider brown adipose tissue, uh, its purpose being 
uh, to generate heat. Of course, that is not a desirable situation when you're, you know, under the, the blazing heat of equatorial regions. So in those situations, the, the mitochondria have evolved to be rather tight because you don't want to generate that excess heat. Uh, but, you know, fast forward thousands of years in, in modern day life, um, it, it does set up uh, uh, certain individuals mm -hmm. for a higher risk of, of degenerative diseases. Yeah, unfortunately. yeah. So, and that, well, yeah, unfortunately, that's the biochemical or metabolic reality that fortunately is that we have the deep scientific understanding now so that we can remediate against this if you exactly. understand that's at risk. So, obviously, if you're watching this, let your anyone you know who is at risk uh, that this is an issue for them and they have them encourage them to watch this video so they can understand it and just take some simple, simple actions that really don't require any, any cost at all. It's just a matter of change, lifestyle changes, maybe taking a little, little, one of the least expensive supplements you can take, which is vitamin D and then measuring your levels to make sure you're in the right, right area. Now, interesting you talked about ATP synthetase or synthase. And uh, there, I interviewed a, a Canadian researcher earlier, Paul Haro. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work, but he's, he, he's uh, uh, done research on the effects of electrical fields uh, on cellular and components and has uh, proposed a mechanism where it actually, especially the magnetic component of electrical fields, affects ATP synthetase and, synthase and increases oxidative stress. So... And an interest, interesting aside. So once you, once you understand the mitochondrial mechanisms as, as you do, as you eloquently describe in your book and, and are doing here, then you can begin to uh, really uh, understand some of the ways that your environment is, is impacting you. Right. And that's one of the things that we're starting to realize as, as people, as the scientific community is understanding the greater importance of mitochondria across the board, we're starting to research the effects of all sorts of different things like uh, electrical fields, uh, environmental toxins, and pollution on the health of mitochondria. So I, it, it, I think the, the field is just going to explode. We're going to get so much more information in the coming years uh, to decades. Uh, and it's really going to shed light on the optimal ways to ensure that we're nurturing the, our mitochondria and minimizing um, the, the damaging effects and uh, the damaging exposures. Okay, so you've highlighted a number of variables or factors that can contribute to premature damage of the mitochondria, mitochondrial dysfunction. And it's sort of pervasive to almost everyone watching this. So most of the people are walking around with damaged mitochondria that are far less than optimized. So let's talk about some of the ways that we can activate or upregulate the, the, the intrinsic processes we have to increase our mitochondria, like mitochondrial biogenesis and my, mitophagy and activating PGC1-alpha and all those, those routes. Yeah. Okay. So, so the two best, probably most research ways um, is exercise, physical activity, uh, and calorie restriction. Um, the one that I like to talk about um, because it has so many more benefits um, is exercise and physical activity. And it's, it's one of those things that, you know, is, is, often boring to talk about because we've heard about the importance of exercise and the need to do it you know, since, since we were kids. Um, but now that we understand the importance of that and uh, the benefit to the mitochondria, it becomes even more important. Um, so, so exercise has been shown to, to upregulate all those genes like uh, alpha PG1. Um, uh, it also helps uh, uh, upregulate um, other um, uh, nuclear gene factors like NR, NRF2. Uh, so these, these are all different um, genes that get upregulated with exposure to physical activity and exercise that help our mitochondria um, become more efficient as well as help help them grow and divide so that we actually have more mitochondria and the, the whole that that's simple I'm, I'm going to simplify it here but the, the the whole reason why we end up with benefits to the mitochondria is that when we put uh, when we go through physical activity we place an increased energy demand on, on the cells. And in response, now keep in mind, exercise and physical activity, we're breathing in a lot of oxygen. We're actually generating a lot of free radicals. And again, even though we typically think of free radicals as a bad thing, in this situation, under the context of you know uh, not enough energy to meet the demand, those free radicals signal that we need more mitochondria. Uh, and so the body adapts to, to physical activity by 
the, the mitochondria dividing and becoming more efficient. Uh, so then the next time we go out and do some physical activity, it's less strenuous. We have a greater capacity uh, to generate the energy that's needed to, to meet that demand. And that means that at rest, uh, we're, we're, we're generating uh, the, the workload of, of whatever the cell needs to do at rest is shared amongst a greater number of mitochondria. Each mitochondria is now under a considerably less stress and therefore generating far fewer free radicals. And that's one of the reasons why we see uh, physically fit individuals um, have a lower risk of all, uh, pretty much all degenerative diseases, including cancer, as well as, uh, as typically a, a longer lifespan as well. Yeah, and that's true for most people, but just to throw out a, a mild caution for the obsessive compulsives out there who think if a little bit is good, let's do a lot. Well, you've got to balance it. You know, if you actually, you've over-exercised, you're actually creating mitochondrial damage, you know, so you've Absolutely. got to rest and relax and balance it. And, you know, the doing simple things like monitoring your heart rate variability can give you a really good aid to telling, giving you the feedback to know when it's not a good day to exercise and just let your body rest and recover. Absolutely. Yeah. So there, you also talk about um, a concept, which is really important that when your muscles relax, you would think that it's not using any energy, but it actually requires more energy to relax. That's right. Say, yeah. So I'll let you expand that in a moment, but I want you, I want to you to, to focus on it because you i've never seen this written anywhere but you, it was really enlightening to to review it in your book is a, a common almost epidemic disease that we're facing in, in many western countries i think probably as an epidemic of the exercise exposure over ex exercise exposure is left ventricular diastolic dysfunction and you know you wouldn't even physicians wouldn't know that if you're cardiologist you know that for sure but uh, it's a problem that is becoming pervasive, and it, it has to do with the left ventricle, the, the chamber of the heart, the, the primary chamber. It's just not able to relax anymore. And uh, so why don't you expand on that? Because it's a really fascinating concept. Sure, yeah. So, so, um, so I think it's pretty intuitive for people to understand that muscle contraction takes mm -hmm. energy. And that's because we, we typically associate um, energy input with, with um, um, uh, strain. Uh, so when we contract, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're straining and we think of that as, as energy. At the biochemical level though, when you look at the number of ATP, that's uh, the ATP, which is the energy molecule uh, that's needed to contract, uh, really we, we only need one. Uh, one ATP binds to the, um, the myosin receptor and, and it causes contraction. Uh, what we call cross-bridge uh, uh, cycling. Now, what happens in relaxation, however, is that we need an ATP to bind to um, uh, uh, um, a receptor on what, what's known as calcium-magnesium ATPase that basically pumps calcium out of the cell, and this is what initiates relaxation. Um, we need one to bind to that, that receptor or that, that enzyme. The thing is, is that there's a second site on that enzyme that requires an ATP. However, it doesn't have a very high affinity for ATP. So the only way a second ATP can fit into that receptor is to have a large concentration of ATP. So at the hope, with the hope of one just kind of falling into place. So whereas, you know, contraction takes one ATP, relaxation actually requires hundreds uh, of ATP molecules, as, in, as an example. With, so, so we actually need to generate a significant amount of energy for our muscles to relax. And I know that's a difficult concept to understand, but the easiest uh, scenario that I can use to describe it, and I say that uh, I mentioned this in my book, is rigor mortis. So rigor mortis is, you know, the, uh, when we die, we're not producing enough, uh, we're not producing any energy anymore. And what happens to our muscles? They go into a permanently contracted phase. They can't relax because there's no energy. Um, now, for a living person, uh, this can cause a number of different health conditions associated with uh, left ventricular hypertrophy or dysfunction, as well as things like hypertension. Um, but when we're talking about the heart, um, the the what we call the ejection fraction is considered the the, the measurement of of um, 
heart function. So when we have uh, very little, uh, a small amount of what we call the ejection fraction, uh, we, we're setting ourselves up for, for heart failure. Now, uh, for normal, so the ejection fraction, just to let me back, backtrack, is the percent of blood that the heart pumps or the left ventricle pumps with each beat. So when it relaxes, that's a reference point of 100%. When it contracts, that percent of blood that's pumped out is the ejection fraction. And what's normal is 50 to 70%. Uh, anything that's under 35% is considered in the emergency situation. So of course, we want the heart to be able to relax as much as possible so that it can have a greater volume to, to pump. Um, but if the heart is not able to produce the energy it needs to fully relax, uh, it, it, you know, it, it partially relaxes. And then when it contracts, there's very little blood that's pumped out. And you do this over and over again, thousands of times on a daily basis. Essentially what's gonna happen is that the heart compensates by thinking that it needs to grow more muscle. So that's where you see the, the ventricle walls uh, in early stages of heart failure start to thicken because the, 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 the heart inappropriately um, interprets that signal as we're not, it's not strong enough and it needs to build more muscle. So that sets up uh, further complications uh, that, lead to, that eventually lead to congestive heart failure. Uh, same thing we see in, uh, in the blood vessels. So all the blood vessels are lined with little muscles. Again, as long as they are able to have the energy to fully relax, uh, the, uh, the, the blood vessels dilate and we have normal blood pressure in situations where we're not able to produce the energy for those little muscles around the blood vessels to fully relax, we see situations of hypertension. And that's one of the reasons why, as an example, coenzyme Q10 has been shown uh, to be able to lower blood pressure. Things like magnesium, which is also involved in the energy making mm -hmm. process, has been shown to lower blood pressure, things like that. Yeah, so why don't we go into the nutrients? We'll hit magnesium in a little bit, but let's go to uh, the uh, nucleotides. Uh, like ribose, yes. it's a it's a sugar. Sorry, it's a sugar um, it, that's part of the nucleotides. ADP requires it. It's definitely essential for it. So uh, you did a great job of expanding on that and and elaborating on the safety of of ribose as a supplement. So why don't you talk about its function, its purpose, and its therapeutic uh, uh, uses? Right, so so D-ribose is a five-carbon sugar, and um, it's completely safe to to consume even for diabetics because it has no impact to to blood sugar in in the sense of blood glucose. Uh, what our bodies do does with ribose is that it gets into the cells and converts it into the adenosine base, so the purine base, which uh, goes on to uh, have the phosphate ions attached to it to create ADP and ATP. Um, it, but basically what um, the, the importance of ribose, D-ribose as a supplementation uh, is that our, even though our bodies produce D-ribose on its own, it's a very, very slow process. It's probably the, 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 the rate limiting factor in uh, recovery for, uh, for cardiovascular patients, uh, people with chronic fatigue, um, and, and it becomes even and stroke. increasingly stroke too. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yes. Stroke, heart attacks. So, so what ends up happening is that, um, uh, now I'm going to take a bit of a, uh, a detour here, but in, in, because you mentioned stroke, um, which is basically, you know, you're, you're blocking blood flow, uh, mm -hmm. and you're causing death to, to cells because you're, you're not supplying the oxygen that it needs. Well, even though you might have death immediately within the, the core, what ends up happening in the periphery of the area of damage is that um, even though there's a, a lower amount of oxygen, uh, it's not enough for it to meet the demands of that cell. So what ends up happening is the cells start to go into a, a lower, en lower energy state or a hibernation mode. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it stops having any need for energy, it still does, but just at a reduced level. But uh, because it's not having that oxygen that it needs, it goes through something called the adenylate kinase reaction. So after all the oxygen is used up and it still has that energy demand, now it has this buildup of ADP. Um, and in order to meet the needs of ATP that it still has, um, it will combine two ADPs to create an ATP and an AMP. Now the ATP can be used uh, to, uh, to 
supply energy, but that AMP or adenosine monophosphate is something that the body does not want in the cell. So it ends up um, removing that out of the cell. Uh, the problem is, is that uh, after a while, uh, when blood flow is finally restored, you know, we go to the hospital, we, we take the, the blood thinners, blood flow is finally restored. Now we have a rush of oxygen uh, and these cells all of a sudden need to wake up. And going back to that ATP synthase, now that ATP synthase has the, the energy or the, 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 um, the capacity to go at full speed again. But now we've removed all that adenosine molecule out of the cell because of that adenylate kinase reaction that was occurring while we had no oxygen. So this sets up something called um, reperfusion injury where we actually see a, a, a an incredible amount of cell death and damage after blood story is restored. And one of the ways to get around that is to supply the, the body with the adenosine um, or deribose uh, mm -hmm. so it can actually produce that adenosine molecule and, and have enough of those building blocks to ensure that the ATP synthase is continuing to, to run smoothly without necessarily creating those free radicals. So, so deribose is um, incredibly important, probably one of the, the, the most important uh, uh, nutritional components for a, a subgroup of individuals that are suffering from heart attack, stroke, and like I said, uh, things like chronic fatigue as well. Yeah, so it, it would seem that the, as you described, the evidence is really clear, overwhelming, there's virtually no toxicity, it's almost impossible to overdose on this. What is your speculation as to why this isn't part of the standard operating procedure for those who are suffering a heart attack or stroke? I mean, they'd be, this should be put in the IV bags. Ever insert, you know, injected it. I mean, just it's almost criminally reprehensible malpractice that it's not. Yeah, you know, I think, I think the conventional medical field um, is just slow to react to a lot of the the, the new ideas and the new uh, research that's coming out. I think they're they're probably going to get to it eventually, but at this point, um, it's still too early in the game, so to speak. Um, the thing is, is that on in a situation where we can predict uh, a stoppage in blood flow, things like cardiac surgery, mm -hmm. we can actually prime these cells so we can give patients uh, deribose um, before cardiac surgery so that the, the risk or the damage, the extent of damage that comes out from reperfusion injury uh, is minimized. But of course, with heart attack and stroke, which is not planned for, um, these individuals are probably not taking deribose prior to the, that that, car, uh, that event, uh, and that's one of the reasons why we see such a greater negative outcome from from unplanned events like that versus planned events like cardiac surgery. Yeah. So, it's still, I mean, we you outlined some um, the extremes and, and the pathologies, but just for those with most all of us who have mitochondrial dysfunction. Probably not a bad idea to be taking some deribose regularly, especially if you exercise. And what would you what would you say is the, from your review the ideal dose and the timing of it? Well, well, when it comes to deribose, anything is going to be better than nothing. Uh, so even if you're taking, you know, uh, a few grams, it, it, it's going going to be better than nothing. But uh, the the minimum therapeutic dose uh, is typically around five grams, and you, and you can go. And some uh, studies have used ten grams or even fifteen grams. So, uh, but I would say you know three to five grams is the minimum. But uh, if you get anything, it's going to be better than than nothing. The other thing I should also mention is, um, especially with uh, you know low carb diets. Um, one of the things that uh, I think would be great for individuals going through any sort of low carb program um, is to supplement with deribose. And that's because typically what happens is that our bodies use glucose as a starting point to create deribose. But like I said, that is a very slow process in itself. But in a situation where you're really cutting out glucose, um, that your body is going to shift any sort of uh, spare glucose that it has into uh, serving other purposes. So, so those individuals, it might take a very, very long time to rebuild any sort of um, purine pool or energy pool in, in the sense of uh, adenosine molecules uh, in the absence of the arrival supplementation. So um, I, especially uh, anyone that's going through uh, um, nutritional uh, ketosis or anything like that, I think uh, deribose is definitely something to consider. Yeah. 
And do you think there's benefit to taking it continuously, like uh, putting five grams in half a gallon of water or a quart of water and drinking it throughout the day? Uh, you know, that's a good question. Um, again, I think that it, theoretically, I think that should be just as good as as uh, taking a, a bolus uh, once a day or, or twice a day. Um, I don't see why that would would have any. Um, uh, I, I don't see. The Why that would be any different, yeah. Okay. Well, let's get back to magnesium, another vitally important mineral, not just for mitochondrial function, but for health. It's probably the single most efficient mineral that we have. It's uh, really the most important, uh, the most prominent divalent cation or two plus charge inside and outside the cell. And uh, we need it, and from especially for mitochondria. I mean, most people aren't aware that it it's not just ATP; it's magnesium ATP. Yes. If you're not, if you don't have magnesium, you're not going to be making ATP. So why don't you expand on that? Because it's it's just so important. Yeah. So so the, the thinking is that that when we talk about ATP, um, that phosphate tail is typically unstable, and what we need is that. Uh, we need an ion of magnesium to stabilize that phosphate tail. Otherwise, that third phosphate can break off before it has a chance to deliver the, the energy that that last bond contains at, at the appropriate place. So when we have, uh, when we have a deficient amount of magnesium, um, we actually <clears throat> compromise greatly mitochondrial function. Uh, and that's because the, the ATP is just not being able to be produced in a stable fashion that our bodies can actually use. And, uh, and as you mentioned, it's the single greatest uh, nutrient um, uh, deficient or mineral deficiency that we see. Uh, so I think one of the things that, uh, I, again, one of the, the one of the many things I think a lot of people need to be taking uh, on a fairly regular basis is is a source of magnesium. Yeah, I would say it's the rare individual, the exception who doesn't need it. I think this is one that almost everyone needs to be on some form of some some form of supplemental magnesium. You say, well, we can get it from our diet, but most of the soil has been depleted, and we've gone over that extensively in the past. So, where your, your typical sources, especially vegetables, are going to be, unless you're growing them yourself and you know composted soils, probably not going to be ideal. So you need to take it and take as much as you can, and, and there's almost no side effect from or. or metabolic side effect because you there's this intrinsic safeguard to overdosing because if you take too much you get loose stools and you poop it out so you <laughs> you can't overdose on it it's like it's pretty interesting i think vitamin d and magnesium are the two essential uh, nutrients that almost everyone needs mm -hmm. but but there are others and you had mentioned at the beginning that one of your initial motivations for writing this book was an offshoot of your involvement with coq10 and trying to explain that to clinicians. So why don't you go to CoQ10 and its, and its cousin, PQQ? Right. So CoQ10, as I, as I mentioned when I was talking about the electron transport chain, is that that component of the chain that accepts electrons from complex one and complex two. Uh, and then it shuttles those electrons and drops it off to complex three. So you can, if you look at even just a schematic of the electron transport chain, if there is, if, if you could identify a potential bottle, bottleneck in the whole process, Quenzyme Q10 would be it. And, um, and that's one of the things that I, I quickly realized when doing the research for, uh, for this fertility clinic is that it seems like just having enough CoQ10 is actually not enough. You actually want an abundant amount of CoQ10. You'd rather have a lot of CoQ10 just laying around waiting to accept an electron from, from you know, complex one and complex two than you know, just the right amount working its butt off, going back and forth from the different complexes, because it, it, when that happens, there's the, the chance that electrons are going to be fumbled, so to speak, and, and spill out. So having sufficient uh, or an excess amount of coenzyme Q10 is, is at this point seen to be a fairly good uh, therapeutic way to ensure uh, functioning mitochondria. Now, the thing is, is that coenzyme Q10 also has other functions outside of, uh, um, you know, uh, being a participant in the uh, electron transport chain. It's also uh, one of the key antioxidants uh, in the blood. Um, so when you look at, um, you know, the, the problem with cholesterol, which I know a lot of people, you know, like to talk about cholesterol being an issue. Well, it's not really an issue. Cholesterol is an essential uh, uh, component of our body. Uh, it only becomes an issue when it's, when it's oxidized. And the thing is, is that, 
uh, CoQ10 is that molecule, it's, a, it's the most powerful fat-soluble molecule that can actually prevent the oxidation of cholesterol. So you having, have sufficient amounts of CoQ10, cholesterol is not an issue. Um, it also acts as a, a, as, as a signaling uh, molecule and it can also, uh, also protect uh, cell membranes from, uh, from damage as well. So there are a number of other um, uh, benefits to CoQ10 other than uh, that, that fall outside of the mitochondria. But of course, its main area of, of benefit is going to be improving the function of mitochondria. Uh, PQQ. Yeah, so PQQ is is um, like you said a cousin of of uh, CoQ10. It's uh, it's also what we know as a quinone molecule. Also, P PQQ stands for pyroloquinoline quinone, and this is a it's a it's a vitamin-like substance. So the, the research at this point doesn't say that it's a vitamin. Early research suggested that maybe it was. I think the newer research throws that into question. But essentially what uh, PQQ does, um, and I think it was one of the, if not the first nutrient to show mitochondrial biogenesis. Um, so um, as I mentioned earlier, the greater number of mitochondria you have, the greater energy that cells are, are able to produce and just function better overall. Um, so with, uh, with PQQ, when you get it, enough of it, you actually encourage the growth of mitochondria. Sorry, I don't know if you hear that, my cat snoring right now. No, but... that's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, you encourage the growth of, uh, of mitochondria and a greater number of mitochondria. So PQQ um, at this point uh, has predominantly st been studied for cognitive health. Um, that's be uh, in, in my thinking uh, is that the researchers uh, chose this because the brain is incredibly energy intensive. So anytime you can e efficientize, if that's a word, um, the energy making process in the neurons, you're going to improve its, its benefits. So what the, the research has shown is that when you ingest PQQ, you create more mitochondria in the cells, the cells are able to work better. And for the brain, that means better cognition. Uh, so uh, CoQ10 as well as PQQ, uh, both very important uh, uh, nutrients for mitochondrial health. But if, uh, out of the two, I would definitely say coenzyme Q10 is, is still the, the, the more important one. Okay, so uh, especially as a naturopathic physician, uh, I'm sure you're aligned with the philosophy of taking a supplement holiday. In other words, not taking your supplements on a regular basis, at least most supplements. But I think there are exceptions to that. Uh, one of them would be my, magnesium in my perspective. I think you just need it. It's like water. You need it every day. Would you put CoQ10 or ubiquinol, which is its reduced version, into that category? I would say so, yeah. Uh, at least from the, the research I've seen is that when you stop taking CoQ10, Within about two weeks, things start to uh, your your um, blood levels start to uh, get get down back to to baseline. So uh, even though you know in in many cases it is a good idea to kind of cycle through different supplements with coenzyme Q10, you're going to get the benefit as long as you're on it. When you stop, your blood levels are slowly going to decline. So at the end of say two weeks. Um, you're really not getting the, the benefit uh, of that anymore. So interestingly, our bodies produce less and less CoQ10 as we age. So it would make sense that the older we get, we actually have to start ramping, slowly ramping up the dose of our CoQ10. Yeah. And the extension of that is the ability to convert it to the reduced version, which is the active version, ubiquinol, right. also decreases with age. So just taking CoQ10 uh, may not be the wisest strategy as it taking the reduced version of ubiquinol. So sort of bypassing that uh, aging associated uh, deficiency. Right, and, and the, the research has also shown that ubiquinol is uh, far greater, better absorbed uh, than, than your oxidized version, ubiquinone. And that's one of the, um, again, going back to my, my days with this one company, you know, and one of the reasons why their particular CoQ10 sold so well was um, absorption is mm -hmm. known to be one of the biggest limiting factors in CoQ10's therapeutic benefits. So if you can Get, get a formulation or, or, or a form that's well-absorbed, you're gonna have better outcomes. And ubiquinol has been shown to be significantly better absorbed than your standard CoQ10 supplements on the market. Well, great. Well, uh, we're approaching the end of the interview. So if you would like to uh, review or comment on anything that we didn't touch already or emphasize something you already previously did, then let's do that here. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> we talked All about right, so we, many things already. Yeah, we did. I, I think we did a pretty good review of the book. And your book is Mitochondria and the Future of Medicine, which is out real shortly. So hopefully it's a, within a day or two of the, this, the date that this will be published. So uh, pick up that book. I think you will be very, very pleased. You can see the extent of Dr. No's knowledge is very deep and it's a thoroughly enjoyable book. This, this is a book that I was really, really sad when I stopped, <laughs> I, was, I wanted it to go on and on because I just, I wanted more. Uh, Cause there was a lot of references at the end. And I, so I was like 75% of the way book through, I thought I had like 20% more and it was all the references. Oh, darn, I was disappointed, <laughs> but, but it's really good. I think you'll really like it. So my strong endorsement and recommendation, pick up a copy of this book. Thank you. And, and thank you for writing it. You know, as I said, books are some of the best investments you can make for literally, you know, 10, $20, you're going to, be able to purchase something that's taken you four or five years to put together. And I mean, it would cost you tens of thousands of dollars to figure this thing out for yourself. If you could figure it out, you have to have the biological training to, to, to put it all together. So thank you for doing this and providing this as a resource. My pleasure. Thanks again for having me on your show.